Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hi, everyone. This is Rebecca, your friendly neighborhood director. Thanks for hanging out with us as we wind down our third season of History 21, the podcast. We've had a lot of fun putting these together and hope you enjoy them as much as we do. As part of our annual appeal at ACHS, we invite you to donate and support of the podcast and other programming you may enjoy. For the month of December, our goal is to receive 1,000 donations. They could be for a dollar or for $1,000, but we want 1,000 people to say they love local history and preservation of community stories. Our little nonprofit can't exist without your support. Thank you for all you've done and all we can still do together for the future. My first recollection of the date, December 7th, was associated with my mom's birthday. As soon as we tossed that wrapping paper in the trash, we could put up the Christmas tree. I think that's what it was really about. As I got older, I learned that December 7th had a much deeper historical meaning, going back to World War II and Pearl Harbor. This surprise military strike on an American naval base in Hawaii by the Japanese in 1941 solidified our involvement in World War II. Months of negotiations had preceded the attack, which intended to disable the naval fleet from interfering in Japanese actions in Southeast Asia. 353 Japanese warplanes sunk four of the eight U.S. battleships in the harbor. All the ships suffered damage. In total, 180 U.S. aircrafts were destroyed, along with 2,403 American lives taken and 1,178 wounded. We are lucky to have a recording from one Anoka veteran who witnessed the attack in our archive. Charles Triggs retired from the Navy in 1960 after 27 years of service, including that fateful December 7th day. In this slightly garbled recording made it in 1993, He honestly doesn't say much. He certainly isn't a colorful storyteller. He doesn't have an excited voice that gives vivid details. But when he reaches the point in his story where he looks out over the water and sees nothing but blood, oil, gasoline, you will hear the catch in his voice and the emotion which makes his story untellable. The importance of this particular oral history is not what was said, but rather what he left out. Charles's voice lives on in this recording and keeps him and other veterans alive as long as we remember. Good morning. Today's date is Wednesday, March 24th, 1993. My name is Pat Schwapik, and I am representing the Anoka County Historical Society. This morning, I am interviewing Mr. Charles Triggs, World War II veteran who was at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. Okay. All right, Mr. Triggs, would you please give me your full name? Yeah, my name is Charles S. Charles Starling. Uh, Triggs. Uh, I have qualified that starling uh, many years ago in the 
named me this. My father's name was Charlie. And of course, we have an English ancestry. And so they told me when I got old enough to know about starting with a beautiful bird. Well, I didn't know any different until I saw one here in this country, and I think they're ugly. But anyhow, that's my middle name, starting. And I was born in Ayrshire, Iowa, January 12, 1918. So this makes me just past 75 right now. Uh, my story at Pearl Harbor incident, it didn't start on the 1st of December, 1941. It started way back, as far back as uh, when Roosevelt was elected president and there was a deep depression on the country. Uh, and all over the world, actually. And so when, uh, at that time, it was almost impossible to find a job. I I worked for as little as 10 cents an hour in order to have any kind of a job at all. And that was in a mill making uh, lumber products. And it was belt time, so if uh, the mill broke down for any reason, well, your time stopped. So if you made, some days you could make 80 cents and some days you could make a dollar if you worked 10 hours, you were made a dollar, and if you only worked half a day, why, it was 40 cents. Well, by the time you paid 25 cents a meal for your meals, uh, you didn't get rich anymore. And so, uh, this is the way that went. And finally, uh, I decided that since Roosevelt had started this so-called tree army of his, or otherwise called the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, for young men between the ages of 17 and 27. Uh, they enlisted in this uh, for a six months period enlistment. And of course, this, the wages there was a dollar a day. $25 a month went home to your folks and $5 you got in camp. Well, uh, I had a lot of people objecting to me going there. They said, well, that's just one way into the Army, but uh, I went anyway because of the hard times there was. Anyway, of course, we got our clothing and our food there, too, besides that dollar a day, but that all worked out pretty fine. And uh, I was there a month or two and was selected uh, to be one of the uh, leaders of the group there. there. Usually they had about 210 men in the camp. And of course, the camp I was in was up in northern Minnesota, northeast of Detroit Lakes. And uh, we built the, now they call it the Tamarack Lake Game Refuge. Uh, the government bought 50,000 acres of land there and, and uh, they we tore down the buildings that were in place, the old buildings, farmsteads and so on, and we saved the lumber, and of course we built a camp. And of course that's long since gone, but uh, I stayed in that camp for two years. I was selected as 
a carpenter there. That's where I started out learning carpentry with. Of course, then after we served our time there, I, there was a limit of two years, so I got out and went to North Dakota. And, well, during the time I was in the seas, that's when Hitler began going into Poland and uh, occupying that, creating a big disturbance. And so I kind of figured out that sooner or later we're going to get into this war, whether we liked it or not. Everybody else said, no, no, we're not. Roosevelt even made a statement that as long as he was president, they wouldn't learn. And none of the boys were going to serve on foreign soil and so on. But uh, it was going to happen, and I knew it. Everybody else kind of had it in their mind. So while I'm up in North Dakota, uh, there was a lot of ships, tankers being sunk off the East Coast by German submarines, and a lot of our other destroyers and, and uh, submarines and stuff were sunk by Germans. So I said, that's it. I came home, and on my way back to Fargo, I signed up for the Navy. I had never seen a ship or a sailor in my life until I, I was a Strictly a Jeff Fine savage, you might say. Uh, All American boy, had never been in place or done anything, but I joined the Navy anyway. And they said, Well, okay, you go home and wait till you're called. You're on a waiting list. It might take a month and it might take three, you know. And so, all right, I went home and uh, I waited and waited and waited, and finally, one day, if I get a call, come to Fargo, uh, prepared to go to camp. So, on my way to Fargo, I had to go through Detroit Lakes, and times being as tough as they were in the wintertime, uh, I didn't have enough money to afford a hotel room, so I went down and saw the sheriff, and I slept in the jail at night. And in the meantime, he inquired what I was doing, I told him, and he said, well, if you're going to Fargo, I'll get you right tomorrow. So he called the guy, and I went to Fargo. The guy, the sheriff, even furnished me breakfast the next morning. So that was fine. So I get there, and then we went to Great Lakes. Now we're thinking about January of 41. You know, this is 11 months ahead of Pearl Harbor. And so, uh, I get down to the Great Lakes, and things are really buzzing down there. At that time, there was five training stations, naval training stations, in the United States operating. And at the time they formed the company I was in, uh, they were forming a company of men a day in each camp. Now there's 210 men in a company. And when you're forming 210 men a day, and now I'm looking at January 29th, and this has been going on. So now you're looking at over a thousand men a day going into the Navy. So I got through the training camp, and then they sent us out to Hawaii, and I rode on the 
old transport called the Henderson, which took nine days to go from Vallejo, California to Pearl Harbor. And there was something like 4,000 people on that. Uh, there were uh, recruits, and there were 200 Navy nurses on it. There was something like 100 naval officers on it, and so on, but the rest were uh, recruits in the Navy. All right, so we get down to Pearl. Now, when you go into Pearl at that time, uh, beautiful place. You could smell the flowers from, uh, from the island, uh, probably a day out to sea. And Oh, it was beautiful. Then you pull in the pearl, and here you see row on row of ships. Beautiful, sleek battleships, destroyers, uh, submarines, and whatever. And you see Diamond Head, and they claim that Diamond Head was armed. <coughs> so, <coughs> with a person coming into a situation like this, no one would ever dream that anybody would have nerve enough to attack something like this, where battleships 600 feet long, row on row of them, set in their arm. Uh, you're not going to pull a gun on something like that, you know. You wouldn't think it. So, felt as snug as a bug in a rug. Uh, here I am, in the Uncle Sam's Navy, and and I'm surrounded with some of the finest ships in the world. And nothing to worry about. And so I got assigned to this starship there. Uh, what was the name of your ship again? USS Wright. W-R-I-G-H-T. Uh, that was a seaplane company. <coughs> okay. <coughs> After being assigned to that, uh, I found out it was in RIDAR there. And that was during the time that uh, they were taking all the old bituminous bottoming paint off of all the ships, which was about oh, anywhere from a half to an inch thick uh, coal based stuff for anti fouling and anti corrosive measures. But this was old, and they were in the process of stripping all that off and putting on a new plastic that was easier to put on, easier to apply, and last longer, and uh, it was it would speed up the ship a little because it wouldn't be such a drag on it. Uh, it'd be slicker, you know. And so, all right, uh, our first job then was. Uh, chipping hammer and going down over the side and chipping all that black stuff out. You go out there, in the morning, you put on a clean white pair of uniform, snow white, and an hour after you worked at that, you come out and you look like a Pennsylvania coal miner. And so, anyway, the ship that I was on was built in 1916 for the Army and commissioned in the Navy in 1920. And uh, it was a sister ship to the Argonne and the Charmont. 
And uh, anyway, it was an old timer, and they used it during World War One for hauling mules over to France. But in the interim of that, after they got into the Navy, they made it into a lighter than aircraft tender. And that, after the war, then they turned it into a seaplane tender. And uh, well, in doing this chipping that stuff off at the bottom, once in a while your chipping hammer ease through the skin of the chip, uh, you know, thin, and rust it out. So they supplied each one of us with a piece of chalk, and when we run into this situation, well, we mark it, and then the ship fitters would come by and take that piece out and put in a new piece of hull plating. Well, we finally got the thing seaworthy again, and then backed it out of dry dock, and our first trip was to Hilo, 190 miles from Pearl. And so when you get out to sea, you wonder if some of them jokers uh, marked all the holes that they caused in the bottom of that thing. Because uh, that, that ocean out at that point is quite deep and, and it's a long ways to shore. So anyway, we made that fine. Well, then in June, on June 16, 1941, uh, we crossed the equator, headed for a little island called Cantmire. That's, that's uh, two degrees south of the equator, 120 miles. And uh, now the, the war in, the, in Europe is heating up. And uh, of course, we were still kind of wishy-washy. My ship carried uh, 100,000 gallons of aviation gasoline in its bowels. And so when we got down to Canton Island, we unloaded by many, many, many 55-gallon drums of gasoline out on the island. There's, there's no, there was nothing there. It was just a, a coral atoll. Uh, no buildings or nothing. About four feet above sea level. So, and it's hot, you know, like 120 degrees in the shade with no shade. And so, we rolled those barrels over on the beach and, and uh, left them there for, because this atoll had a little lagoon in it, and planes would land in there and we'd go and take off again. So, all right. Uh, our little commander on our ship, uh, he was afraid. We were there four days and four nights in June, and he didn't care whether he was an apprentice seaman or a chief petty officer. He'd come around day and night, patting on the shoulder, hurry on boys, let's get this job done. I'm afraid we're going to get caught before we get out of here. Uh, and on the second day we were there, there was a ship come over the horizon. We could see the smoke, but we couldn't see the ship. Well, we went to battle stations and uh, waited. And finally, the ship came up over the horizon and we decided it was a Swedish ship. So that cooled down. The little commander, he, he was getting tired. He was all done in. So we got out of there and went back to Pearl. 
Well, we made a couple of trips out to Midway and so on. And then later on, I think it was in August, September, uh, we had an order to load a seven-inch gun mount in our bows and take it out to wake. So we loaded the gun, you know, a seven-inch gun and all the trimmings with it. It's quite a load. It's not just a, a gun you stick under your arm. Uh, it's a, a bigger, it's tons and tons of weight. And so we loaded the gun. Well, uh, at that time, everything was wide open. There was no censorship of mail or anything else. Uh, you could go to a bar or a barber shop or a grocery store or wherever you wanted to go in Honolulu, and as soon as they recognized you were a ship, you know, oh, you're going out to wake with that seven-inch gun. Everybody knew it. See? So it got to be so wild before we got underway, uh, we had an executive order from Washington to commence unloading the cargo that we couldn't take that gun out to wait for fear it would offend the Japanese people. All right, see, you can see through the lines a little bit. Uh, we unloaded the cargo. Then we got an order. Proceed to Hilo from Pearl. We went down there and we loaded 200 Marines personnel and a couple of carloads of rakes, shovels, garden rakes, of course, pickaxes and shovels and uh, things like this and head for Wake And so we went to Wake and we dumped the Marines off. When we unloaded that group and we headed back to Pearl uh, on a Sunday morning, I don't think I ever saw another nicer day in my life at sea or any other place. Uh, the weather was perfect, the sun was shining, and no wind, and it was just ideal. And so I enjoyed the top side. Uh, anyway, we headed back, and uh, now you got to remember that uh, around Pearl Harbor at that time, they had established a blackout zone, a uh, hundred miles around the island was a blackout zone. You couldn't have a, you couldn't have a light of any kind, blue, red, yellow, whatever, no lights at all. They didn't have any radio contact, they didn't have any signal lights, they didn't have nothing. Was, you were traveling in the dark. At night, it was dark, it was black. And so, uh, we headed back for Pearl. Well, during the night, before we went into Pearl, uh, the moon came up. And we spotted a carrier in the moonlight with its task force. Well, we assumed 
that it was either the Lexington or the Saratoga largely. Because, you know, at that time who knows nobody thought about a war. And so we just let that go as such. Well, of course they didn't challenge us, we didn't challenge them. And so they went around behind the island and we were supposed to come in the next morning, uh Pearl. Well, the Japs hit Pearl before we got in the harbor. So they flagged us, they signaled us to back off. And so we didn't get in until the afternoon of that day. So, but when we came in, well, here's the Nevada sitting crossways in the channel going in. And uh, uh, Arizona was still burning. And uh, the dry docks were all aflame. And, it was still going, see? and so uh, what we got into was the cleanup, uh, and so uh, this is the way that way. Uh, it was you. You can't imagine a feeling that people would have. When you uh, your earlier feeling was all this power around you, you come in there and you see the shambles, and uh, the harbor was actually uh, between oil and blood. It was no. So that was it, and uh, of course people look at this like a sneak attack, which it probably was, but I've seen all of these things happen, watching it grow into a war uh, as a young man, and, and watching this thing and the way it happened. And, and so now. That was Pearl Harbor, but uh, you know it's it's amazing. Uh, and if I live to be uh, another 25 years older, I'll always say that that whole deal was cut and dry. It, it was planned. Uh, there was no way out of it because. They had to squeeze Japan into attacking us. Now, we, as I said, was in and out uh, frequently. I spent three years, five months, and 25 days in the war uh, with that ship. Uh, we didn't get out of the harbor then until uh, the following March. So, from Hollandia, I got transferred. And uh, anyway, from this transfer, I was assigned to the 
floating dry dock treating center in Tiburon, California. And there, as a chief petty officer, I was uh, schooled in the art of dry docking the ship. Uh, they made a dock master out of me. Uh, I was 28 years old. And I was the youngest dock master the Navy had at that time. And that is a job billet for someone like a lieutenant commander or a commander, but they didn't have that many lieutenant commanders or commanders, so uh, I was one. And so after I got my education in that and got uh, pretty good at it, uh, I had a, a four-stripe captain that was observing all of this every day while I was in school and so when I graduated, he said to me, Chief, would you mind serving on the dock that I have in charge of? And I said, not at all. So, okay, he went and spoke for me uh, at the headquarters, and I was sent then to Seattle with him, and uh, he was a skipper and I was the dock master of a floating dry dock, a concrete job. That was over 300 feet long. And it took us 47 days to tow that thing from San, uh, Seattle to Iliwitak. And it take, I had 65 men on that ship on the dry dock. Uh, now, that was a secret weapon as far as the Japs were concerned because they couldn't figure out how <coughs> they could get into a scrape with a destroyer or a cruiser or uh, a ship like that. One day, and the uh, ship be disabled, and it would cripple away, and, and in uh, three, four days or a week, it would be back on the line again. If we were a couple hundred miles back of the line, they'd fall back, go into our dry dock, we'd repair them and send them back out to duty. And I spent 17 months at Edwitak on the Broken Dry Dock. Well, by that time, I had five years and eight months in the Pacific without leave. And so uh, I got sent back to the States again, and they assigned me to another Dry Dock in Seattle. And they said, well, you lost at this ship two years Kodiak, Alaska. And I said, well, you guys might be going to Kodiak, but who are you going? I spent five years, eight months in, in the tropics, and I'm not going to Kodiak and freeze. And so I said, make out my order. Go home. I'm done with the regular news. But in 1960, I believe it was, 1960, I retired from the Naval Reserve and the Navy. Uh, I have 27 years uh, military service, plus a few years in the CC camp. Uh, 
that's Charlie Trick. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty great. Uh, I'm not a hero, but uh, I've seen a lot. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hi, my name is Diana Nurberg. I'm a librarian for Anoka County Library, and this is your Library Minute, featuring just a few of the many materials we have about Pearl Harbor. Here we go. First, we have Pearl Harbor, From Infamy to Greatness, by Craig Nelson. If you're looking for a really comprehensive depiction of not only the attack, but everything leading to it, as well as the aftermath, Nelson's account will more than suffice. This well-researched book, clocking in at over 500 pages, is the riveting result of a team of researchers' five-year distillation of nearly a million pages of documents. Next, we have Pearl Harbor, FDR Leads the Nation into War by Stephen M. Gillen. This book shifts focus slightly from the attack itself and looks at the leadership of then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt. The book focuses on the president's response in the 48 hours following the attack, but also contextualizes that response with information about FDR's life leading up to the attack. Finally, we have Dawn of Infamy, A Sunken Ship, A Vanished Crew, and The Final Mystery of Pearl Harbor by Stephen Harding. This book details a little-known incident leading up to the attack. An American cargo ship chartered by the Army, the Cynthia Olson, came under attack by a Japanese submarine. Author Stephen Harding outlines some of the mysteries surrounding this particular event and how it could have altered the subsequent attacks. These and many more resources are available from your local Anoka County Library. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anokacountyhistory.org. Hey, you're back. Hope you enjoyed that episode as much as we did. I wanted to let you know about things that are coming up this winter for the Historical Society that you're going to want to be part of. So in addition to our podcasts that are on the first and third Friday of every month, we are planning programs at the History Center on the second Saturday of the month this winter. So January, February, and March on the second Saturday, we're going to have some programs. So I'm going to give you a chance to go grab your pen. Are you grabbing it? Okay. If you're driving, I understand. It'll be on our website. Don't worry. We'll send out some emails. So January 13th, we've got the State Hospital Program. That's at 1 o'clock. And it's just a historic overview of Anoka State Hospital from the battle to get it built in our county, the first patients, all the way through the changes of decentralization in the 1950s and beyond. Okay, that was a Toy Story thing, so never mind. On February 10th at 1 p.m., we have a Valentine's program because who doesn't love a little love in February? So it's a history of Valentine's Day and how Anoka County has celebrated it through the years. We've got items from the collection, newspaper blurbs, some letters, maybe some diaries. It's going to be a really interesting program uh, just before Valentine's Day. So if you want to bring a date, that's fine. If not, uh, you know, hey, maybe there's some some love in the air at the History Center. Uh, we might have some cookies. March is the Sheriff's program, also at one o'clock. And a few years ago, Vicki Wendell put together a book on the Sheriff's Office and crime in Anoka County. Uh, we have a few of those left at the museum. So if you would like one, if you don't have one on your bookshelf, come to the program. 
you might just walk home with a book. How about that for a tease? So if you need a sheriff's book, come by in March, one o'clock, and Sarah's going to talk about the, the sheriff's office, some crime, uh, talk about what we have in the collection related to the sheriff's office, and we'll just have some fun talking about law and order. We've got a bunch of other programs coming up that are going to be in different locations. Uh, the library always partners with us for programs through the Legacy Funds. Uh, so January 24th, we have the Temperance Tantrums program, which is actually going to be held at Forgotten Star Brewery. And that is a really neat historical building. It was also another podcast episode, if you want to know more about that. From 5 to 8 p.m. is the window of time we have the back room over at Forgotten Star. The program itself is going to start at 5.30. Uh, you're going to need to register through the library for these programs. Uh, so there'll be more information on their website for registration. Uh, that one's January 24th. Then we have March 23rd. We have the quilt program at 2 p.m. at Northtown Library. As Sarah is going to explore the quilts in our collection and the stories behind them. You're going to get to hear all sorts of interesting information about the types of quilts and the patterns, the people that made them, why they're in our collection. And bonus, at the end of the program, you'll have a chance to adopt those quilts and not only preserve them for the future, but also help out ACHS as a fundraiser. April 25th at 5 p.m. is A Logger's Life at the Johnsville Library. This one's open to all ages. Cassie is going to cover the history of logging in Anoka County, which is going to bring lots of hands-on items and kind of work through the history of lumbering and what it entailed and why Anoka, because it was on the rivers, but what it also did to the landscape, uh, not to mention those hands-on items that are going to be really fun for people to interact with, especially if you've got, you know, say maybe an eight-year-old who's super interested in logging. Um, yeah, so there you have it. Those are our programs that are coming up. Watch your email for some more bulletins. Check out the website. We're going to have a great calendar that you can interact with. And we hope to see you through the doldrums of winter. Thanks, guys. Bye. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future. <laughs>